Hello, everyone. My name's uh, Kenneth Branner, and uh, everyone calls me Ken, so please feel free to do so if you choose to talk to me while this uh, director's commentary is going on. And I'm here to talk a little bit about uh, how we came to some of the artistic decisions we made when we were um, creating our new film of uh, Thor. So first off, the marvel of it all. I was asked to do this back in the summer of 2008. And one of the first things that we had to decide is what's the basic structure? And one of the things that I was keen about was that we should start on Earth. And so here we are in Puente Antigua, Old Bridge, for those of you who know your Spanish, uh, in New Mexico. And the sequence that you're watching now was one of the very first ones that I worked on with our first storyboard artist, brilliantly talented young man called Federico Alessandro. And it was about coming up with a kind of teaser on contemporary Earth that allowed us to do a number of things. First of all, introduce a vast Earth landscape, something that could be, during the course of the picture, epic. Uh, I'd worked in New Mexico as an actor, I'd shot there, and I knew it was the land of the big sky, and the sense of immensity in that landscape would be visually very powerful and might work as a, as a very strong mirror for some of the epic landscapes that we would uh, try and convey off Earth, as it were. We also wanted to take this opportunity to introduce the audience to characters, contemporary characters, in this case Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman, Eric Selvig, played by Stellan Skarsgård, and Kat Dennings, who plays uh, Darcy Lewis here, uh, at the front of the movie, who are engaged in scientific activity out in the desert, watching the skies, uh, and who are introduced to this extraordinary aurora phenomenon. And uh, I will digress in various ways. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, auroras. This kind of look, this kind of image, was the sorts of um, image that we were finding uh, all over the world during the course of the two or three years of my involvement with it. So every time somebody saw some amazing thing happening over Moscow or over the desert in uh, Finland, we would pool these kinds of uh, images and we would talk about it with our visual effects team uh, and we would work out how closely we could mirror actual phenomena uh, that were found on Earth. And that's where the beginnings of that Earth-like aurora phenomenon meets the demands of the story, which uh, calls for a rainbow bridge the Bifrost, uh, as the uh, comics have it, which is part of the means by which our characters will travel from uh, world to world. This first shocking moment of a race through the desert and then hitting a man who we don't quite see was always a, a strong feeling about, about literally starting the movie with a bang in a big landscape, new characters, contemporary characters, a race, a chase, and then a big question mark. Where did he come from? And so uh, here, at this point in the movie, in the original version of the screenplay, there was the idea of some kind of um, prologue. So you have a teaser to allow the audience perhaps to understand we'll be back on Earth, a landscape and people that we'll enjoy being with. But now we go into a version of a, a prologue that tries to introduce some of the thematic material, some of the, the world of the larger Thor universe. So here, for instance, this... Scandinavian influence, this fjord, this world of Tonsberg, Norway, uh, a name indeed, which those of you interested in the larger Marvel Universe will may well find uh, features uh, elsewhere. 
But as you can see through this very concentrated, condensed, um, we hope very impactive storytelling uh, here, uh, certainly what we were aiming for, we introduced both the Viking element in Viking Earth and then the arrival of the Frost Giants. The Frost Giants are going to be enormously important in our story. And technically, we um, uh, created them by actually designing um, some uh, very impressive makeups that real actors wore, as well as creating some computer-generated versions of them. The king of the Frost Giants, who is facing off here with uh, Anthony Hopkins as Odin, was played by Colm Fior, marvelous Canadian actor. And we wanted anybody who had to face off against the magnificent uh, master of the screen, Anthony Hopkins, to be also, you know, wonderfully charismatic and able to convey a little with a lot. And uh, Colm Fior, with the, uh, the role of Laufey, did just that. We wanted here to understand that there had been a battle, as there were so many in the history of the Norse myths and the history of the um, Marvel version of the comics, that this is a warrior race full of historical examples of where they fought and lost worlds and gained worlds and how their history was forged, but also how their lives are led, which is to tell tales of yore, uh, tales of dashing exploits. And it allowed us also to talk about where Jotunheim was and where Asgard is in the universe and to introduce it through this rather disguised upside-down shot that may or may not be some kind of power source, some kind of lighting, some sense of uh, a kind of almost nuclear reactor at the bottom of what we now see revealed through the water is a fjord-like land. You have the magic of the buildings on the right floating above uh, their base. And then this vast central tower at the back of an Asgard, uh, which is very much influenced by Jack Kirby, by empire, this kind of image that you might expect to see in the Roman or Grecian empires. And here, another example of how we evoke Asgard, which is with a shot like this, that is a sort of cityscape shot, to absolutely maximize what I'll talk a little bit about later on, which is um, 3D. But uh, for now, let's uh, find ourselves here, arrived in Asgard with young Thor and young Loki. These are terrific uh, performers. Dakota is Thor and Ted is uh, Loki. And uh, they were remarkable for their ability to capture something of the essence of uh, the older actors who played them and also to have fun with and be up to speed with uh, Mr. Hopkins in this scene. They loved being in this set, this vault set, which we constructed. Many of the sets uh, we constructed because there was a, a concern that we do as much as we can to make sure that uh, as exotic and fantastical as some of the worlds in the movie should be, it should not feel synthetic. There's a, a sort of relative reality we discovered that we wanted to have in uh, superhero uh, movies in this case, uh, which somehow wants you to believe everything, even though it's fantastical and building sets was part of seeing real textures, real interaction with real people, real shadows, uh, so that when we go to the entirely computer-generated world, which is the case with a shot like that one, uh, we can um, uh, feel the reality of an architectural structure like this, uh, the hall, the great hall for the ceremony that will be about to um, have Thor king and so this vast crown the great doors behind the vast throne 
All of it were constructed over many months by Bo Welsh, our production designer's great art direction, construction team. And it did make a great difference, for instance, here to Chris Hemsworth, who's our wonderful Thor, embodying that willful, rather arrogant young warrior who needs to walk through the halls of Asgard for the purposes of our story, as if he absolutely owns it. So if you're in a great space like that, um, although it's entirely possible for actors to imagine it, they do it in the theater all the time. You have an empty space. You have to imagine some exotic place. Nevertheless, here, with that costume on, these golden walls, with this curious mixture of a sort of primitive quality to the, uh, the whole layout with the patterns on the floor, but also the sense in the finish on the walls of a material that you believe could be made by a race that travels through space so that they are technologically advanced, much more advanced than us, but also they have this call back to an ancient culture that uses ancient weapons like uh, that spear, Gunnir, the all-powerful weapon of Odin, Mjolnir, the hard-to-pronounce mighty hammer of Thor, uh, an iconic uh, part of the Thor story. And I, as a director, I love this combination of uh, the ancient and the modern, the primitive and the sophisticated. A, a character like Loki wearing his horned helmet, but they're inside these kinds of remarkable buildings which have their own um, partly Viking-influenced layout, but also have this kind of super sci-fi quality. Um, it, for me, it was a, a fascinating combination to try and bring to bear. People interested in the larger Marvel Universe, I think, may be interested to answer the questions of what are those additional items in these alcoves, in this vault? One of the enjoyments of being part of that larger Marvel Universe was being able to, wherever we could, maybe just offer a little indication of how other elements of it might play here that perhaps feature elsewhere. And uh, so I encourage anybody uh, who fancies doing it to maybe have some fun working out what else was in the vault. And to pledge yourself only to the good of the realm. I swear! None this day. It's uh, time probably to talk a little bit about what I think is the uh, luxury casting of our film. That man, Anthony Hopkins, if you're going to cast someone who looks as though he should run the universe, he's your man. It's a universe that has to protect itself against this kind of thing. The vicious... A violence of the frost giants, these creatures who can terraform worlds as they do with the vault there, creating ice that encapsulates uh, the walls, the water, being able to produce ice weapons from their, from their very hands. Uh, but they are not uh, invulnerable to something as extraordinary as the destroyer. And we get a tiny hint of this creature ruled by, run by Odin, uh, who will appear later on in the film and who is a, a sort of killing machine. This was a very early decision to choose that particular creature, monster, machine, whatever you like to call the destroyer, as a key element in our picture. This brings me back to the casting and how, with some of the things we've spoken about, the idea that at the center of this there would be a film that you could refer to as being about fathers and sons, or indeed about who would be king. Some people have said to me, oh, there are Shakespearean connections here. Where I think connections lie are between what Stan Lee was after and, and what classic mythic tales look at. And in this case, it is the story of fitness for responsibility. Thor here reacts to the same thing that Odin's reacting to. Odin reacts with what one might call judgment and discretion. 
young Thor here is is without those qualities. He wants to go and uh, he simply wants to go and hit out. He wants to punch. He wants to fight. And it looks like that may be the way uh, he's going to run his version of the kingdom. But as you see in that very effective uh, reading from Anthony Hopkins, he isn't king yet. When we did this scene and Anthony Hopkins came out with that reading, it was one of the moments uh, which we subsequently learned as, as it started to play, where you could feel for what we hope would be all the fun of the opening of the film, this was a moment where the temperature changed a bit and suddenly you realized that there was actually a very passionate and kind of um, hot familial relationship at the center of it. We often talked about it for all that they're speaking in a slightly more heightened way and that they're speaking with this passion and here they are on an asteroid at the top of the universe. But we would often say that the sort of emotional feeling here is entirely uh, contemporary in terms of what a father might relate to his uh, sons and the frustration that the sons might feel. And so that was something in rehearsal, which we did m many times ahead of the actual shooting. We tried to encourage. You just wanted to, to believe these people. And in this scene, for instance, you want to believe that these two are brothers and that the Warriors Three and the Lady Sif who joined them here are their genuine friends. The sense, however briefly done, but in the feel of how it's done, in the way they react to each other, in the in the kind of intimacy, in the knowledge, in the in the uh, almost casual way they talk to each other, that they know each other, that they go back a long way, that in this case, as we had rehearsed it and built our backstory, that they'd been to the Asgardian Academy, if you like, that they'd already been through many battles uh, so that when Fangel and, and, and the others now suggest to Thor that it's madness to go to Jotunheim, we believe uh, that they've been on other similar kinds of uh, adventures, that they're bonded, that they're a group. In fact, they're a group that we want to be with. Um, and so this it was very important as a, as, a, as a means of understanding that they were this kind of group, if you like, of young cadets. And also here, as, as throughout the rest of the movie, that there's a kind of lightness of tone a lightness of touch that's um, embodied by the warmth between them and then a kind of reaction like this from Thor. So that kind of back and forth we, we wanted to enjoy. I did. True, but I supported you, Sif. My friends, we're going to Jotunheim. Thor is an epic, and here, with this kind of shot, with the use of the horses against this extraordinary cityscape, the sense of breadth and the geography itself, these massive uh, golden gates, and then this iconic element of the of Thor universe, the rainbow bridge, the Bifrost, which in the comics is a, is a sort of a psychedelic, uh, turning right-angled thing that leads all the way from Asgard to Earth. Here is a literal bridge but with clearly energies running through it that are, are very special. It was something that took us many, many, many months, really the whole of the design process to perfect to our satisfaction. It was tied into this building behind the glorious Idris Elba as Heimdall, his observatory, as we called it. We tried every kind of experiment with it, uh, as you'll see in some of the shots, the bridge and the light impacts on the bridge as people walk on it uh, change slightly. The way in which they do that has been uh, something we've experimented with in very many ways. The actual nature of the, the substance of the bridge, we researched um, in terms of um, 
modern plastics, in terms of the makeup of quartz, etc., and crystals. We tried every kind of version of this fusion between uh, a light source, a light energy that would play very importantly into the story at the end, uh, but that also had the sort of magical feel that we were after. As I say, it was tied into this, this idea of this turret, this observatory, this globe, which in terms of directing people away from Asgard was now something directed by Heimdall, who with this extraordinary inner mechanism could direct this gun, this nozzle, this turret, this observatory into the universe and through the way in which the lightning uh, connects and reflects on the interior creates a kind of an astral map an astral map reflecting if you like uh, the uh, the patterns of Idrisil, the tree of life, so you see an idea of it here, uh, as if it's some sort of extraordinary underground map or some sort of road map where he chooses a place inside that um, nebula, inside that vast galactic uh, solar system that is uh, the Idrisil through which the nine realms are spread. He chooses the destination and he sends you there. And here they are being uh, drawn into the Bifrost. And that was me enjoying taking the sound out completely to try and create uh, the real impact of passing through this sort of time warp, space warp, uh, so that they have traveled through the, the Bifrost, through the, the trees and the branches of the, of the Bifrost until they land here on Jotunheim. So the logic of that sort of space travel uh, Heimdall's position up there as the lonely attendant, as the, as, the, as the guardian of Asgard, the last person you see as you leave, the first person you see as you return. Uh, I'm very pleased with the way everybody worked on that. We had a marvelous visual effects supervisor in uh, Wes Sewell, who was full of brilliant ideas for that, as was Bo Welsh, whose team built so much of uh, the observatory itself. Beautiful finishes. Here we come to Jotunheim. Jotunheim we'd imagined as this once absolutely splendid city of ice, also like Asgard, from a civilization that uh, were very sophisticated and yet had this primal connection to uh, the source of their power, water, ice, cold, all concentrated in the blue casket that has been stolen from them in their view by Odin, the casket of ancient winters, and it's that almost nuclear device that would allow them to leave here, first of all to restore this to its former glory, then leave here, travel through the Nine Realms and terraform and conquer other worlds with this terrible icy power. So in this opening sequence, which is a combination of uh, work that we did on some set uh, and some CGI uh, realized by uh, Digital Domain, uh, amongst our many VFX uh, uh, vendors and partners that we worked with. We wanted to create this sense of, you know, dread at what Jotunheim, the now broken down Jotunheim, the, the angry planet, the planet full of emptiness and echoes and pain, what that would bring to the story. Time for Odin's son. We know you are. How did your people get into Asgard? There you hear for the first time a slight treatment of the voice of Laufey. And here we see a proper sort of first appearance for this uh, deadly red-eyed uh, king of the, of the frost giants. Confior 
unbelievably patient about the uh, five, six hours it would take him to get into the full body makeup that we used for him. Legacy was the company that we worked with and they had an incredibly dedicated team of people who were you know, up in the small hours uh, working with him. And uh, he's an example of the kind of actor who really can uh, use the makeup, not do too much, be very still. I mean, allow the makeup to really um, inform uh, who he is. And so the, the acting comes in from under and it's very, very powerful. Uh, this is an interesting moment for Thor because um, in a way, it's, it's, his, it's, it's his gamble, it's his risk. And we see the point to which perhaps he can be pushed before he uh, brutally uh, risks uh, war by um, potentially provoking uh, and whether he's capable of listening. Something that is a, it's a slight sort of shading on what we may have to understand about him later on. Just before all of this kicks off, might be worth talking about briefly here. We will again, costumes. Uh, Alexander Byrne did the costume. She's uh, an Oscar-winning costume designer. I've worked with her many times uh, and started with her back in the theater nearly 30 years ago. Her attention to detail in Thor's costume was amazing, from those discs to the cape to the way it sculpted itself around Chris Hemsworth's body to the way it was influenced by the comics and by the Norse myths. And the way in which a confident and cocky Thor can uh, move in it. So here you'll see these costumes under great uh, stress and strain. And the fight you're about to see, the first big major action sequence, was one where we wanted to make sure that everybody amongst the Asgardians had a chance to have some kind of signature move, uh, particularly, of course, Thor, who's the provocateur here. And at the same time, we wanted to showcase the incredible threat of the frost giants themselves, uh, this dormant, uh, pain-filled race who are now pouring out from every conceivable part of this mixture of, is it stone, is it jade, is it ice, exactly what is this world uh, constructed of, but it's dangerous and it's lethal and potentially has many, many more of its population than Thor is currently uh, considering. Meantime, the sort of general philosophy for the fight was, as you can see, to try and put the audience as close into it as possible. For my first film, Henry V, I had the great pleasure of working with uh, a wonderful second unit director and, and a great stuntman as well, uh, Vic Armstrong, uh, whose work you'll know from many Bond films, from the, the Raiders films, from him being an incredibly impressive a double for Harrison Ford and having been a very effective uh, and, and brilliant director uh, of many things, but uh, action being one of them. I worked with him and his team, Andy Armstrong and, and the Armstrong clan, who are a great part of our industry. And we worked to, first of all, find out what everybody's individual gifts were. We, we did a kind of a boot camp and we make sure everybody was flexible, that uh, Fandral could be flashy with his sword, that uh, Tom Hiddleston here as a Loki could use the daggers in an interesting way that are part of uh, his character and that we could, with long lens photography, sometimes do what we did in Henry V, which is to try and put people in, inside the battle closer in this sense of a kind of hectic, frenzied moment where things like that can happen. You turn around and suddenly the taking your eye off, the, off, off, off what's going on for even a second is lethal and dangerous. So we wanted there to be this sense of hurry and of frenzy. Uh, it was less about huge wide shots showing hundreds and thousands of people fighting each other at this point, but more a sort of dirty scrum that leads to this kind of revelation that once again, 
Thor, cocky Thor, has underestimated what this, um, you know, angry, hurt race uh, have in store. And here, what appeared to be a um, statue or a plinth that was commemorating some great beast of the past that was announcing the entranceway to this part of the city, it turns out to be, in fact, a sleeping giant. This beast that now is uh, uh, headed towards the rest of the Asgardians who are leaving with the hurt Fandral. The inclusion of the beast uh, happened about halfway through post-production where the original beat in the story had thousands and hundreds of thousands of frost giants uh, emerging from under the earth. And uh, by this stage in the battle, we felt we'd done it. So we needed an additional element. And uh, uh, I was very, very pleased that we came up with and then enjoyed the idea of this uh, ice monster doing this kind of uh, chasing while the damage that Thor has done, which is essentially breaking the very floor of the planet up, uh, is, um, is at work in, in the same way. And the, these kinds of shots, this massive shot with the uh, Jotunheim falling with the creature upside down, great idea of Federico Alessandro. Part of the process where, for me, as a, as a relative newcomer to the world of big visual effect shots, uh, happens very late in the day. So many of these shots, which I, I, I was thrilled by, were always planned and I knew what was coming, but it was really quite late in the day when they arrived. So the experience uh, in, a, in a visual effects picture where you've worked on it for maybe two, three years of the full understanding that that's going to happen doesn't doesn't quite get to you until the last minute. So it's a little harem scarum, you know, the, the visual effects shots are cooking away and... Uh, Eventually they arrive, and when they do, you get a lot of magic right at the end. Meantime, of course, you're mixing sound and you're uh, mixing and creating other visual effects, like the additional snow here, or like these additional frost giants. And um, you need to be very, very confident in all of your uh, in all of your fellows. We had a great head of visual effects in, in Victoria Alonso and a great v VFX producer in Diana Giorgiuti. And uh, they worked all hours that God sent with their team uh, to, to make sure that um, if you needed an eight-legged horse in time, then uh, Sleipnir uh, would arrive. Uh, Sleipnir, uh, the eight-legged horse, I absolutely love. For those of you familiar with the Norse myths, you'll know that Sleipnir has many adventures uh, of his own uh, across the myths. And in fact, one of the challenges for us when we came to this material was just what to select, what to include. Uh, there is, There are nine realms, there are dwarves, there are elves, there are, there are norns, there are characters like, hugely important characters like Balder, like Princess Carnilla. War and death. There were so many opportunities to create so many different kinds of, of, of story, but our real sense was that both for the devotees, for the aficionados, and I hope for people new to the story, is that we would try and tell a genuine origins story full of this kind of excitement, this kind of, you know, warring worlds, but that actually at the center of it, the backbone of it, apart from the antagonism of someone like Laufey and his uh, very disappointed, revengeful race there, uh, at the center of it was a story of, as I've mentioned before, fathers and sons. And, and here we come to a scene which uh, encapsulates this struggle between an Odin, who's absolutely serious about how difficult and how necessary and how precarious uh, a job it is to protect the safety of the nine realms, the whole of the known universe, uh, and a son 
who seems to be working on instinct, an instinct that doesn't seem to be serving very well. They, he may have set off some kind of nuclear war. And here you have a chance for a kind of passion between these characters that I think is unusual. Because the stakes are so high, the universe is at stake, it can take this level of feeling. And so here, when Anthony Hopkins receives this blow, this dismissal, um, a line that Prince Hal might have said to Falstaff in the Henry IV plays in Shakespeare, you see him take the hurt, you still see the lion roaring in relation to um, to Tom Hiddleston as Loki, but uh, you have this um, great capacity for feeling conveyed through simplicity, but he's not afraid of the, the fire of it. So you feel the incredible passion at the center of the picture. And so you know when they're playing it with this kind of intensity that we hopefully will be able to come back here and want to know how this story is resolved. Who will be king? What will happen to Asgard? Is Odin's heart broken? Is it more than that? But we, we're feeling the beginning of a very marked moment in Thor's journey, a journey which will literally see us, see him change from that arrogant youth who, who uh, paraded and cheered his way down that ceremonial room to someone who's going to have to think seriously about whether he belongs here. And I love this cashiering moment. There he goes. There's a biblical line, and it's a biblical action. The fall of man. Thor falls from the Garden of Eden, if you like, from Asgard. And he's stripped, court-martial-like, an image that I pulled from the Dreyfus Affair. Paul Mooney and the Dreyfus Affair, ancient film about an extraordinary uh, scandal in the uh, French government of the late 19th century. And uh, they pull the epaulets off the uniform. I wanted to do it in that scene. And then to uh, bring that extraordinary uh, leap through space uh, for our hero to return to the place from where he first began at the beginning of the movie. And as we uh, come to this scene, one of the things we noticed when we started to screen the movie in our small friends and family screenings, as we call them, because they don't become public ones because of the uh, dread, fear and terror that uh, uh, negative things might be written on the internet and so, uh, or just spoilers, etc., etc., for work in progress, um, we, we realized that this return to Earth was something that people were really enjoying. They, were, uh, they felt uh, pleased to be back amongst these characters. And of course, now you're looking at Thor in a completely different way. You're bringing to this the uh, the sense of all of that uh, drama and grandeur that went on up in Asgard, but it's coming, it's backing up against a modern sensibility, which inevitably results in it being quite funny, uh, absurd and surreal in some ways, but funny. And uh, back to what we started talking about at the beginning of this, uh, contemporary Earth and humor were two ways in which uh, I felt we uh, had to go in order to blend and make successfully stay in the same film. All of these many combinations, the fantastical elements, the space elements, uh, the Jotunheim elements, uh, the drama up there, and the investigation and the science down here, uh, all of it had to include a sense of humor, basically, a sense of humor that you've seen uh, Chris Hemsworth embody in, in, in his uh, in his performance, uh, and that we definitely see here in the reactions of Selbig and of uh, Jane Foster and of Cat uh, Dennings as Darcy. Once again, the beginnings now of the classic tale, the classic tension, if you like, of uh, uh, a god amongst men. 
starts to play out comically. Let's talk a little bit as we see Thor on Earth about Chris Hemsworth, the casting of Chris Hemsworth. Uh, about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, young Australian actor. I met him at the beginning of the of the three, four-month uh, casting process, and uh, we didn't know much about what our Thor was going to be like. He had a cold. I don't think anyone had given him any pages. Maybe we didn't have any pages of, of, of the script. It was a little unsuccessful, I suppose, our, our, our meeting. And then about three months or so later, when we had met people from all over the world and tested some people, we... We, we knew much more about what our character should be like as we see the uh, crater here uh, made by the uh, falling Mjolnir. Uh, and when we understood that we needed this character to change, there would be an acting range required that he couldn't just be muscle, he couldn't just be brute strength. We were then lucky enough to, to uh, smart enough somewhere, one of us was, not me, uh, to understand we should get Chris back in if he was prepared to do so and come in and, and we did meet and we talked and we workshopped and we tested and he told Thor war stories and he was involved in passionate scenes and he had romantic scenes and he did some physical work and he absolutely owned it. He, he walked in and took the part by the scruff of the neck and uh, one realized that we'd be luckier than a lucky thing to have him so Chris Hemsworth additionally to all of that showed himself to be a natural screen actor he knows how to hold the screen he knows how to be in front of the camera not just to do and so uh, feel very very lucky that this movie um, has him at his heart because he he uh, he carries it off um, he's able to carry the movie no mean feat here are two people who've carried movies before. The beautiful, wondrous, intelligent, funny, sharp, true Miss Natalie Portman and the brilliant Mr. Stellan Skarsgård you've seen in a thousand films. He's a ubiquitous actor, always striking, always brilliant. And there you've seen already lines that have uh, amused and thrilled us. Cat uh, Dennings is a brilliant comedian, excellent actress. The three of them got on very, very well and they lend this scientific credibility to the story of this, the man who fell to earth. Here, an image from inside that uh, funnel cloud. I enjoy in this shot uh, the red shoes, uh, the, the red uh, um, uh, crocs on, on the right side of frame. And, and the color palette throughout, we try and be as you know, subtle and intelligent with as we can, the blues and the reds there that echo Thor's costume. And that's something that we discussed, uh, obviously, with Bo Welsh, who gave me a nice clean room there, with Alex Byrne, who gave me those simple costumes. And, of course, crucially, with Harris Zambalukas, our director of photography, uh, who was involved with this project from the very earliest days. And he and I would, with models of the sets and, in, and an entire mini lighting rig up, uh, we would play as if with a kind of doll's house uh, on the interior of something like this. That when we go out to a real interior and way ahead of time, we would practice uh, what we wanted from the, the lighting. His contribution was crucial, as are moments like this. Exactly. Uh, it made me laugh the first time we did it. It's made me laugh every time since. I think it's funny when people, uh, cruel as it is, get hit in moments like that. Obviously, it's a bit of a running gag for Thor. This scene, uh, you know, fans of the comics will know, has appeared in varying versions of the comics, and um, I love it for the... Uh, for the fun and for the color that it introduces, but I just also enjoy the fact that uh, 
This is um, Stan Lee, who you may see coming up in a moment, and uh, the Marvelistas raiding the Norse myths, uh, but also popping in their own Arthurian moment with uh, Excalibur. And there's Stan Lee asking, uh, did it work? Uh, no, Excalibur, or Mjolnir in this case, is still in the stone or in the rock uh, in this case. I had lunch with Stan Lee before we started shooting. He's the most extraordinary mixture of energy and intelligence and kindness. Uh, his insights into the character and his generosity about uh, his invitation to us to do with them what we would uh, were incredible. He was really a joy to work with. This work, evidenced in Chris Hemsworth's torso, was the product of his six, nine months of very intensive work in the gym. And I thought that I might risk saying that I'd had his head uh, pasted onto my body here uh, for this sequence, but I fear that you wouldn't believe me. So I guess I'm just going to have to tell you that it was him. And I remember a few days before we shot this saying, uh, rather embarrassedly, uh, hey, Chris, I, I want to do this shot. It seems important to me that we reveal Thor in this way. Do you mind taking your shirt off? To which he replied, do I mind? I've been doing this for nine months, mate. Of course I'm going to get my shirt off. Uh, I'm glad he did um, because it's produced gasps in uh, in early screenings and and we needed Thor to look like a god. Chris Hemsworth does. Here's the home of the gods, Asgard, where from that uh, beautiful uh, evocation of the city we pan into another one of uh, Bo Welch's great sets. Above you see what is a ram's head inverted, which becomes the the uh, the canopy to this uh, this real fire. Beautiful shot, I think, that one of uh, Jamie Alexander as Sif. Let me talk a little bit about these uh, excellent actors, starting with this man. Tom Hiddleston I worked with in the theatre and on television in England, and he brings to Loki uh, intellectual complexity. Um, he has uh, a real swiftness of thought. Tom has a fine sense of humour, so you can get Loki the mischief maker. He, like all the others, did an enormous amount of work by way of preparation, by way of research into the uh, comics. Uh, and he's someone as an actor who from take to take is very free, very able, very imaginative, and uh, is really quite a brilliant uh, young uh, talent. He got on very well with both uh, Chris Hemsworth directly and was part of a very very happy uh, kind of chemical combination of folk in in this uh, in this group Jamie Alexander as Sif an absolute comic geek she knows more about the comics than than most of the people involved with the project I think she's from a family of many brothers and she has also that tomboyish quality um, that makes her unafraid to be involved in the physical stuff so she did a, a great um, job of conveying the warrior princess but uh, she also as you can see is quite stunningly beautiful and brings to uh, Sif's inner life as we go through the movie really quite a complex uh, quality particularly in relation to what she feels about Thor it was very fine very subtle piece of acting Here we see Tom Hiddleston as Loki uh, returning to the casket of Ancient Winters to try and understand what happened on Jotunheim when his skin appeared to turn blue. And in a moment, there was a very good suggestion of Craig Kyle, one of our uh, co-producers who was intimately involved. We reveal that Loki is at least part frost giant. Once again, in this scene, 
it felt as though the film was trying to be uh, ambitious to bring to this family dynamic, this, if you like, relatable, universal issue, not experienced by many, but understood by all, of what happens when your life appears to have been exposed as having been a lie. Loki is not, in fact, Odin's son. And although the act of saving him uh, may, in Odin's view, have been the beginnings of um, loving and adoring and caring for him as his own son, the reality to Loki of this lie and the evidence that his father is in fact Laufey is, is obviously a kind of uh, cataclysmic discovery for him. I thought we could unite our kingdoms one day, bring about an alliance, bring about a permanent peace through you. But those In a scene like this, it seems to me that, again, the stakes are so high, the, the passions involved are so extraordinary that the kind of acting moments touched on by these two are pleasing and unusual in a film like this, I think. They give it some ballast. They are the kind of uh, weight against which the comedy of so much of the rest of it, the fun of so much of the rest of it, uh, sits and, and, and is offset, and that it's a necessary balance. When you put these two together to do something like this, I think you are blessed. Uh, Tony Hopkins, this was his first day on set, his first scene, and uh, I decided that I would experiment with something I'd been experimenting with as an actor myself, which was to... Uh, start the day in a scene like this by shooting the close-ups. Normally you'd start in a wide shot like the one we've just seen and you'd move slowly in and you might get to close-ups after lunch or in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, at whatever time we got him on set, maybe half nine, ten o'clock in the morning, Tony Hopkins was doing the close-ups for this scene. I thought he did a magnificent job and he was incredibly generous to young Tom who was incredibly patient and did his close-ups much later in the day or even the next day. It was an example of great camaraderie and cooperation between two actors. The town of Puente Antigua uh, we built um, in uh, New Mexico, just outside Santa Fe, is this uh, wonderful western town that uh, was featured in movies from as far back as Silverado and as recently as uh, Ed Harris's Appaloosa. Um, we took the basic shape and we remodeled the frontages and instead of the dust track down the middle, we, we tarmacked and we created what I wanted to be uh, with Bo Welsh was a sort of heightened version of a kind of Americana that I had enjoyed seeing in the comics. I wanted it to sit in the vast sea of the desert, just like Asgard sits in the vast sea of space. And I wanted to be able to have the colors of the seats, like the red here, have a sort of ambience that, that, that evoked the world of, uh, of Edward Hopper, a kind of heightened, um, very familiar, very intensely flavored, intensely colored version of small town America that comes out of the comics and that is immensely fascinating and attractive, I think, to anyone who's not from America. And I hope, obviously, if you're from America, it's equally interesting. Uh, but it was to do with trying to have Thor land in a 
coherent um, uh, environment, um, community, where when eventually it is threatened, we have some sense that it deserves not to be threatened, it deserves to be saved, and that there are kind people there, and people like you and me. And so the, the building of this town, the creation of this town inside the desert with that kind of backdrop right at the back with the mountains and, and the fun of a sign like welcome to uh, the home of the Vikings on the water tower there. This was a wonderful part of, of uh, creating an earth part of a, a, a translation of the comics, which I loved doing. From a movie point of view, building something where we could have control over it. We, we did lots of scouting down in New Mexico. There are lots of candidates as real towns. And that issue of level of reality was, was, was one we discussed uh, much. But here I, I knew that we would be staging later on a big battle in it. And I just wanted to be able to stop and start and have complete and utter control over what we were doing and the camera style and not be stopping traffic and not be uh, dealing with everything that's to do with closing down a, a real town. Also, uh, I wanted to have the time to, you know, again, have some of the fun of uh, at the beginning of this scene, Thor walking down the street, ignoring, <laughs> ignoring either walking on the left or the right hand side, walking like a god walks. I mean, people should get out of his way. The other part of his god-like quality was this sort of gallantry, the idea of kissing hands and generally being a sort of a knight gallant to someone like... Uh, uh, Jane Foster. And, and here you see that in the very brief time at which you may be able to establish some kind of romantic feeling between them, she is uh, absolutely thrown for a loop by his, his old-fashioned gentlemanliness wrapped up in this kind of gargantuan, massive sort of caveman body. Um, and one can see that, that uh, he makes an impression and swiftly. However, we also know that uh, life won't be made easy and, uh, and into the movie, as hinted at earlier on when Clark Gregg showed up at the crater site, there's now a, a much stronger presence of the mysterious government agency S.H.I.E.L.D. in the form of uh, Mr. Clark Gregg, who you'll know from uh, Iron Man and uh, who I was really thrilled to be working with in this. He has uh, great sensitivity for the character, great deadpan quality, very dry and funny man uh, in his own right. But he does the difficult thing in a part like this, especially one that's now become a very successful part of continuing to keep it honest, play it straight. Uh, and he brings that side of, of the story, this concern on the part of S.H.I.E.L.D. and, and Nick Fury and, uh, and those who work with him uh, at the potential danger, the potential knowledge to be learned from what's happening out here in the in the New Mexican desert, and and from what's happening in Jane Foster's uh, brilliant maverick scientific journey. The shots that follow, I love for having been in New Mexico for again, it gets away from the synthetic, and there we are, the real set, the real desert, and for me, tilted angles, dutched angles, as we call them. Um, uh, because that's the way I remember comic book frames. It was something controversial at the time. I remember there was some concern about whether I was overdoing it. I hope that you don't feel I did. They were there because that's how I received the dynamism of uh, the composition in the frames. Wide-angle lenses with lots of depth, and it's why I chose it as a style for this. And while we're talking about depth and, uh, and here live in the New Mexican desert on the top of Smith's Motors, this um, spaceship 50s retro designed look that tries to 
evoke a little space even on Earth, a little outer space even on Earth. Let's talk a little bit about 3D. Uh, 3D was a discussion early on in the process. I didn't want to shoot in 3D. I needed more time to work with the actors. I wasn't confident about about how swiftly I could work with the two 3D cameras. Um, and so uh, I investigated instead uh, what would happen if we converted. And uh, as we indeed did, rendered the vast majority of our 1,309 visual effect shots in post-production. Friends. Where's Odin? fallen into the Odin sleep. Mother fears he may never awaken again. I was very, very happy with the results. Uh, I'd had the initial discussion saying, look, if this is just a, an attempt to make some more money, uh, people will see through it. I need to go through a journey where I can understand how much more value it can add for me. So I did, and when we prepared our five-minute piece for the great convention of Comic-Con in San Diego, we we worked out how uh, 3D could enhance a more and a differently immersive version of the film for sequences like this, where uh, uh, you have an iconic image of, of uh, Tom Hiddleston as Loki on the throne, and where here you can um, have a sense of the grandeur, vastness, and layer out the depth between the warriors for uh, and him, between them and the background, in a way that I think often subtly and, and sometimes more directly puts you in the picture, gives you a stronger, more immersive sense of being in Asgard. We worked particularly on the depth script, that is to say, through being able to have control shot to shot on how the compression or release of the space inside the frame worked, we could avoid, we hoped, that headache-inducing, eye-hurting kind of quality that is sometimes the product of either rushed 3D or 3D where shot for shot, when shot, has depth judged perfectly, but when put together can be problematic. We wanted a smooth and subtly enhancing, but not kind of wildly uh, disturbing version of 3D. I was delighted with the uh, results in both the spectacular scenes, but also in some of the subtler scenes where um, just a different sense of, of being there and a different relationship to some of the characters, the textures and the compositional elements was something that I was very happy to experiment with. It took a long time, but I was pleased and proud with uh, the way uh, the company we worked with, Stereo D, uh, they did a fantastic job. There's the rainbow bridge for you, and Odin on it. That shows you how far we came. And then something that I wanted to have in the movie from day one, which is just the simple explanation that Thursday comes from Thor. It is Thor's day, um, as indeed uh, Friday comes from Frigga. And there are two other days from the Western character that are also influenced by the Norse myths. Are you a horse? We don't have horses. I wish I could tell you I'd given Chris Hemsworth a great reading of that line, um, I want a horse, which makes me laugh uh, almost every time. Uh, I didn't. He did. He came at uh, the part with such a natural sense of humor that it was, it was great to see him get value out of that fish-out-of-water moment and a very good reaction from the pet shop keeper. This is an area where 3D I like very much in terms of how it makes me feel the vastness of the uh, of the desert. And if you're not watching in 3D, of course, it's a very nice series of shots. Um, but uh, it was it was one where uh, where it was it was it was about uh, giving a, a, an in-depth experience that wasn't necessarily to do with hammers throwing themselves at you. 
This is an ex- experience, by the by, where Natalie Portman, who'd just been working on Black Swan, uh, was talking about the moments when people said to her, oh, are you frustrated? You get to work on an independent film and you have all that marvellous creative satisfaction uh, and then you do something like Thor and it's all a big sort of machine. She said on this one, for this scene, we had all day to do this scene. We spent all day driving around the desert and many, many takes to try and get this right. She said on an independent film, you never have any time. You've got to do, you know, four scenes in a morning and move on and uh, you're often left frustrated because you didn't get a chance to practice. So for Natalie, the kind of uh, time that we were able to take just for a scene like that to try and get it right with lightness of touch but depth at the same time uh, was a, a real enjoyment in the process. The talented and beautiful Rene Russo plays Frigga and she and uh, Odin had some more scenes in the film that in the end didn't make it into the final cut simply because we just didn't have the room to do everything else the story was doing but I admire her so much she was such a beautiful actress um, inside and out and, and gave her a wonderful wonderful sense of, of, of depth in, in this uh, warrior queen she was a, a pleasure to work with God she's a great looking gal um, and she got on very well with these two kids this idea for the restorative Odin sleep effect uh, was a very good one from uh, Miss uh, Victoria Alonso and um, uh, I think it tells the story of, of Odin's need to regenerate. Now we do one of these switches from Asgard to Earth that was one of the real challenges story-wise about how we could make it work and throughout draft after draft this uh, this this rhythm finding this rhythm and in post-production was really crucial um, Kevin Feige our producer always had very good instincts about when we could or shouldn't go to Earth or or Asgard back and forth. Um, what were the ways to exploit that rhythm, not confuse the audience? We knew probably there would be people who preferred being on Earth, there'd be some people who preferred being in Asgard. Uh, we wanted both because we felt as though the story had to interweave. It was an exciting sequence like this that allowed us a, a sense of how with music we could come back and really, you know, make a, a great advantage of this, uh, as she says, city thrown up by shield with all of this paraphernalia to analyse this, uh, this hammer. It's worth uh, talking perhaps uh, a little bit about this set, which was uh, put together by uh, Bo Welsh, and I thought was a sort of brilliant graphic response, a sort of comic visual language response in all of these tubes and uh, cubes to um, the marriage between, again, the fantastical up on, on uh, Asgard and, and in space and down here, earthbound, but still excitingly graphic and dynamic, lots of shapes, uh, lots of uh, texture. I think that uh, both the way he designed it and, and the starkness with which Harris Zambalukos could light it um, was, was very exciting. It, it felt like a really different kind of texture. It was felt surprising, a different kind of dynamic to this, uh, to this part of the movie. It's also worth talking just about uh, music. So the composer of the uh, score for the film was uh, Patrick Doyle. Patrick 
uh, I've worked with since his first film and mine, uh, Henry V. He was a, a student of composition and piano at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music. He then worked as an actor. He has a very wide-ranging experience of story and uh, his gifts as a composer are a wonderful um, ear for melody, uh, but a great sense of the dramatic. He always gets involved very early on and um, we knew that he needed to have the kind of drive in the music that would uh, keep the sort of ticking clock of Thor's time on Earth really vibrantly motoring through, um, for instance, a sequence like this. Patrick's particularly good at being able to craft, once he sees a sequence like this, the ups and the downs of the music, leave space for the sound effects, uh, leave space for the visual effects, be able to give and paint in a musical introduction to, uh, to as important a character as we're about to see of uh, this man. Um, and so his sculpting of the score is really exemplary and his ability, of course, to write a great tune uh, is, I think, uh, un unmatched. He's, uh, he's had a fantastic and continues to have a fantastic career as a composer and he made a, an enormous contribution to this. This is uh, uh, Barton Hawkeye, a character familiar to uh, readers of the, the comics uh, Beyond Thor. They'll know that uh, he is uh, one of the Avengers. And a, an, an extra pleasure in being in the Marvel Universe was to get a chance on this picture to work with this young man, uh, Jeremy Renner, uh, who came in much further down the line to, to shoot his part of this uh, sequence, but was uh, a joy to watch and to work with and to see someone uh, latch onto a character immediately and to do so in, in the style and, and, and with the talent of the best by uh, a beautiful choice of relative minimalism um, uh, in, in the look and speech of the character. And it was, it was very, very nice to have that kind of a talent come into a movie like this, in, in, in this case, uh, a small part. Uh, all of this work in the mud was done very late, very late in the night, maybe four o'clock in the morning uh, during a couple of weeks of night shoots, which are always a challenge on a movie. Uh, Mr. Hemsworth uncomplaining, uh, as were the rest of the brilliant uh, stunt team. Uh, all the boys who are used to this, who nevertheless have to sometimes put up with fairly trying conditions were were great. The, the, the sort of mud fight helped us understand this primal quality to both Thor and to this point in the story because now he's going home isn't he he's going to get his uh, hammer and he's going to go home and that uh, arrogant Thor is going to prove that might is right if you can only smash your way out of a hospital or out of a van or recruit people like uh, Jane Foster to help you you'll get it and here in the music we we try and set up this sense of impending triumph the great strong man of the universe will claim his right. Excalibur will be lifted from the stone. Thor will be returned to his full powers and will be able to go home. Except, of course, that he can't. Only he who is worthy. That's what Odin said. And we have not seen sufficient evidence in this story of the flawed hero uh, who must lose in order to uh, find... Um, we haven't seen the evidence there. This is not something he's going to take easily, however. And once again, that primal part of the character kicks in. Like a great bear yelling or like a 
crazed child hysterically uh, screaming. Uh, some part of him is broken by the certain knowledge that he ain't going back. That's it. It's over. No home, no friends, no family, no powers. This becomes for Thor a pivotal moment in his journey through the picture. And one of the things I love about Chris Hemsworth's performance is just the look coming up, the, uh, the sense as he sees the symbol of home, of that hurt and of that youthfulness in his look. That great oak tree of a man is now almost uh, a, a sort of bottom lip quivering kid. Um, he's had to really un understand that he's not going home. It's very touching, I think. And uh, I asked Pat to reflect that in, in, in the music. It's the moment at which perhaps they may have admired, they may have been amused by, they may have a sneaking admiration for his cheeky, uh, grinning, winking uh, cockiness, but, but now perhaps the audience have genuine sympathy for this man because he's, now he's down at our level. He loses stuff, he doesn't get his way all the time, uh, and uh, maybe it's the, it's the point at which the audience fully sympathise with him. I like this scene very much for a number of reasons. The 3D uh, or just the composition generally in this lab I, I love because they were at the back of the lab in the wide shot and you have all those uh, layers of structure. You have the real genuine outside of a real town at night through the, through the glass, seeing all the neon. You have this passionate debate, which in a way sort of states the kind of parameters of the you know, issue of reality in our film. She quotes Arthur C. Clarke, uh, magic, just science we don't understand yet. It was science fiction, says he, uh, which is a precursor to science fact. And and I think that if you just look at our own lives, what's happened in our own lives on, on what may seem a rather superficial level, but 15, 16 years ago, we didn't have uh, the, the internet and everything uh, working as it does today with all our handheld devices, the whole revolution of the social media. Imagine the massive shake-up in our own lives that's gone on so that the degree to which uh, Jane Foster can argue that just because we don't understand or have complete uh, experience of a, a, a blonde god from another world coming to uh, live amongst us, it doesn't mean that miraculous things can't happen. You know, if you told Christopher Columbus that a small piece of plastic would connect you to um, back home to Genoa uh, when he landed in, 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 in uh, 1492 uh, to tell them that he'd just discovered America, he would have perhaps laughed in your face a few hundred years later. It's all normal. Anyway, the basic notion of... of uh, accepting the suspension of disbelief for some of the miraculous qualities in in um, in in the picture that 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 search for a certain kind of credibility were caught by Natalie Portman's passion there and by I think some well-written work from uh, our, our team of writers when we talk about the sort of emotional core of the film uh, which exists in a in a picture that uh, essentially, has always drawn the reaction when we screened it early on, and we always wanted to have it draw the reaction of being fun. It's a it's a fun experience. It's a summer movie. It's something to enjoy in in a beautiful way. Uh, but nevertheless, at the centre of it, you hope there are there are these other things, including here, I think, beautifully played between Tom Hiddleston and Chris Hemsworth. This moment where. Thor believes not only has he lost his home and is forbidden from returning to it, but uh, 
that he had lost his father. And uh, the reaction to this news and the way in which he articulates quite uh, tenderly, quite vulnerably, uh, his response, I think, is beautifully done. The act, if you like, of Loki is wonderfully seamlessly done by Tom, who evoked as by way of a sort of model for the character, the, the, the character of Iago in Shakespeare's play Othello, who is, um, if you like, the great, the great actor in Shakespeare, um, a terrifying character who is a sort of sociopath who um, will disguise every real feeling under, under the mask of something authentic and genuine seeming. Well, here, this dynamic between two brothers who really, I think, do love each other but have this complicated relationship as, as Loki's burgeoning knowledge of who or what he might be and therefore who or what, uh, especially what might be available to him, uh, is, is, is occurring inside him, questions being asked, and they play this very delicate scene so well. Uh, I was most impressed by them, and I like the fact that it's in this neutral arena, this quieter, simpler place, another series of contrasts to the sometimes very busy and spectacular world of colour and complexity in, in terms of the layout of shots to something very simple and focused. Loki, of course, can't resist the idea of picking up that hammer. This was, again, a great touch from Kevin and Craig and co. to suggest that uh, uh, he could be um, irritated by that extra nice Loki moment. The writers involved in our film have done a wonderful job from the uh, story shaping um, that uh, Joe Michael Straczynski and Mark Predisavage did uh, across various uh, drafts of the screenplay that, that were there just before I arrived that gave this kind of uh, hero's journey arc, the exile and the return that um, I, I certainly was, was um, very excited to try and further develop and um, enhance. And then with uh, Ashley Miller and Zach Stentz, who, who came in and then worked with me initially on, on how we uh, bring that contemporary earth element to um, the story and allow a sort of consistency of tone uh, across that. And there were many excellent drafts that came out of that process. And then with uh, my great friend Don Payne, a brilliant writer from The Simpsons, of course, we took this yet further and uh, really looked into the fun to be had from a character like uh, Eric Selvig. And Eric Selvig and, and uh, Darcy very much um, developed by Don with his particular uh, sense of fun and in collaboration with them. So Stellan, for instance, came to rehearsals early on and was key uh, in trying to make sure that um, there was nothing sort of merely functionary about uh, these characters, but that they had, as you can see in the look in his eye there, he just carries that sense of worry. This is a man who knows he's dealing with a government organization who could put him in jail. And when he reacts here to Clark Gregg's uh, um, last uh, farewell uh, instruction, uh, you know, you feel the depth of his relief. That contribution with Stellan talking in that case to Don and coming up in this particular scene with some ideas about how Selvig helps us to understand via Chris's very excellent performance, once again showing yet another colour in Thor. Very surprising uh, what we see of Thor in this scene from the man we saw in the very first scene. And it's partly brought out by... Um, Stellan's character, asking him some questions about who he is and what he finds uh, meaningful. And, and, and these, this very sort of uh, bonding scene between the pair of them, I think, is very honest. It's very open. It's a scene that we understood early on in screenings. So was one where the audience actually did enjoy seeing 
Thor just like us and trying to put his life back together. We know that the movie isn't going to end there, but we also know it's not going to be easy for him, whether it's getting back to home or whether it's getting to find a home uh, on Earth, especially as we see in this scene, that Selvig is, is naturally suspicious and protective uh, of his, um, as it were, surrogate uh, daughter uh, in Jane. Uh, these two were so uh, in, enjoyable to work with in this scene, and, and Stellan comes in so prepared and so available and so ready, so different, so ready to play, as he might put it, that uh, they, uh, they really were... Um, uh, such marvelous collaborators. They did, however, provide us with a problem in this scene where we also had a, a, a fight and uh, um, a series of um, drinking contest moments at the end of how we finished it. We wanted to finish it simply on a kind of upbeat moment. And of all the scenes in the movie, the end of this was re-edited maybe 150 times. And it took a long time before we went for what is usually the preferred option, which is the simple one, especially in the hands of two very good actors of a, a real, uh, and in this case, uh, pretty funny look from uh, Stella Skarsgård. <laughs> we know he's gonna get into trouble with that. The visual effects here um, give us once again Loki's return to uh, Jotunheim and uh, the chance for Loki to face but not reveal to his father uh, exactly who he is. Uh, we did some additional photography uh, in this scene and it was to exploit one of the um, qualities in Loki that... Uh, we felt we could, we could, by virtue of just how good Tom Hiddleston's performance was, also include, aside from him being a genuine brother and being a, um, a, uh, a hurt brother and a, an ambitious and perhaps a, a rather jealous brother, uh, uh, to be mischievous and dangerous, of course, is a necessity for Loki, even if one does not necessarily suggest that he is preternaturally evil, but that his capacity for wrongdoing is emerging, forming, shaping itself before our very eyes. This scene allows us to see a more calculating Loki at work, someone who is playing the poker game with another master player, his real father, but his real father does not at this point know that this is his son. He was abandoned after all. And he would have assumed, and, a, and a, another version of the scene suggested this, that uh, Odin would have killed that bastard child of yesteryear. Uh, so this becomes a, a scene of, of many levels between two very calculating, dangerous uh, guys who are used to the world of brinkmanship and two good poker faces. We return to uh, Heimdall's observatory where, again, you in this scene, get to enjoy the power of Idris Elba's performance. First of all, the look is fantastic. I can't imagine another actor who would carry off this incredible costume, which uh, Alex Byrne, I think, has triumphantly uh, presented as the kind of look that a guardian, a man who really is uh, the person who says, and we believe him, thou shalt not pass, um, in wonderful, wonderful golds, and with a great shape, great design. It's a, it's a marvelous frame for an actor. And in it, you have Idris Elba, who, whose voice we slightly amend to just maximize uh, the beautiful, rich, dark, warm tones in it. Because as the single representative of Asgard out there, we wanted just every time we heard and saw him to be aware of uh, 
this memory of, of the guardian, the man whom you disobey uh, at your peril. It's nice to go from him to something as relatively mundane as Jane's caravan. This is the moment in the movie, in a way, where it could go several different places. Thor is without his powers. He's starting, he's reborn, if you like. And so this is a moment um, uh, where we understand, maybe with Loki's uh, activities uh, in, the, in, the, in the worlds above, that it's the calm before the storm. But it's the calm in which the audience, I think, have a chance to take in this new Thor and I think fully invest in him and perhaps invest in the idea of some kind of relationship between him and Jane. It is difficult in a, uh, in a big action film to allow the room for romance, if you like, or a kind of um, uh, chemistry between uh, perhaps the central boy and gal uh, having... Um, any extra dimensions or even just having a feeling of authenticity to whatever level that's pursued. It doesn't, it isn't the case that these things have to be grand passions. I suppose what you want to feel is that they like each other, that they get on, that they're listening, uh, that, that, that it's a relationship in which you slowly, you're interested in what happens uh, and in which you might invest. It can't be overburdened by suddenly becoming the grand passion of, 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 uh, of the ages and yet there is much to uh, to value out of these uh, instant uh, connections between in this case people from other worlds many people have asked me about the sort of shakespearean influence on this and i i can't say any of it was remotely if it is there then it's only because shakespeare nicked some terrific uh, story ideas and uh, and uh, plot points from great writers of the past and we continue to steal from him and one uh, situation uh, that uh, clearly was a, a, a big hit for him was the idea of putting people together from different worlds, the Romeo and Juliet, if you like, of it all. And so um, the beginnings of that uh, starts here, which is simply that a new and humble and modest Thor is listening and is asking questions and is caring about someone else. He is interested in someone else. And that sort of generosity of spirit, of course, is incredibly winning, I think, for us, I think, for Jane. And you see, I think, a quite honest beginning to a relationship that leaves the question mark of exactly, well, how far can it go during the context of, of this story? Um, and uh, what kind of weight can it hold? And, and can it do that whilst still allowing for it to be fun? And I think that many people have commented about this scene, that it's their favorite scene in the movie. Uh, you get some wonderful, simple things, which are uh, this look, for instance, Natalie Portman looking at someone and letting us understand that she may feel something for him that is even beginning to surprise her. I, I think that that quality in her performance, subtle, brief, rich, is, is, is one of the things that sort of helps uh, distinguish uh, the picture uh, in terms of how it approaches certain things. Uh, we're trying not to work too hard, but just for it to be real. And I think that she's very real, very convincing there. She, she's very, very charming as she laughs about the hubble hubble mix-up. Hubble telescope. Hubble telescope. <laughs> Tell me more. So the nine realms. Now there is Midgard, which is Earth. Salfheim, Vanaheim, Jotunheim, and Asgard. And that's where I come from. 
This is a handsome shot of our hero uh, all the way through shooting between Mr. Hemsworth, Miss Portman, and really all of them, Cat, um, Jamie, all the boys, uh, Tom, and then some of the other, the Warriors Three, who I'll talk about in a little while. One was constantly reminded of what an amazingly handsome group of people. Uh, Marvellous to look at. Here, the, the, Warriors, uh, the Warriors Three are um, disputing what to do. Uh, Josh Dallas plays Fangel, and uh, he does so with an English accent with great aplomb, uh, marvellous debonair dash, and he's matched equally by the tremendous Ray Stevenson, who uh, you'll know from uh, his brilliant turn on uh, the HBO TV series Rome and many, many other films. I worked with Ray many moons ago, and uh, it was a pleasure to, to, to bring his incredible screen gifts to his, his... He's got such a great face for movies. Um, a handsome lad who knows how to be still. He's matched here by Tadanabu Asano, a great star from Japan who brings to the role of Hogan the Grim um, inscrutability, but an enigmatic, playful intelligence and a sort of deadly capacity for... Uh, physical violence, you know that when he speaks it's going to be important and uh, there was great uh, camaraderie between these four and it, it really uh, fueled the, uh, the quality of the scenes, the sense of that bond between them, loyalty and fun of course. I am bound by honour to our king. I cannot open the bridge to you. Complicated fellow, isn't he? It's true to say that there was uh, more of the Warriors 3 uh, and Lady Civ shot, and once again, not through lack of quality from then, but, but through a uh, simple uh, um, traffic jam of, uh, of elements that we wanted to put gracefully into this world of the film. Uh, it, it wasn't possible to include everything, but uh, they had great fun, and uh, some of it now infuses this part of the movie. Well, once again, we enjoy the fact of the gods coming to Earth. Here, the rhythm of the film, as it switches so instantaneously, is, is a great tribute to the uh, gifts of our editor, Paul Rebell, who is a wonderful collaborator throughout, marvellous uh, and award-winning uh, editor and uh, very musical. I always think it's very helpful if an editor is, is uh, musical. He plays the piano, but he, he has an intuitive feel for um, uh, the length of a cut and the feel of a cut and has so many tricks at his disposal to do with uh, being able to use everything we can, whether it's uh, uh, split screens or uh, accelerating shots or flipping and flopping shots. I mean, we really, we, we used every kind of trick in the book here and he had that in addition to the great treasure trove of visual effects that produces things like uh, the Destroyer. Destroy everything. So we bring the Warriors 4 uh, to Earth, and uh, this is a, a fun moment and one that uh, it's tough to get just right. It's very nicely uh, underpinned by Patrick's music. Uh, there's a part of the magic of movies. Uh, the character of Volstagg was not in the shot that you saw. We filmed him separately afterwards and we put him into the shot, the kind of thing that seemed necessary in post and only possible because you're working on a great big Marvel movie where that kind of thing can happen. It was one of the numerous moments where I thought, gosh, if I had had this opportunity on previous films, uh, uh, they'd all have cost uh, squinty billion dollars. But um, I hate to add that's not what this cost, but it does provide... Um, the chance to get things right. 
Just before we head into, you know, the last phase of the movie, which is full of action and destruction, it's lovely to have had, including the cup drop, a kind of piece of um, delicious daft comedy uh, before now coming back to the big question of why they're here, of uh, taking Thor home. You know I can't go home. My father is... But of course, it being the kind of movie it is, we're not going to make it as easy as that, and there's going to be a, um, a significant sequence now where the destroyer, called by Loki, comes to Earth to deal with Thor and prevent uh, his return. First, of course, uh, Loki has to deal with Heimdall, who's been registering suspicion. And I love, by the way, this shot and the, the way it evokes the kinds of work that were done by the French uh, VFX uh, vendors, Bouff. Pierre Buffin and his team with Nicolas Chevalier, a great team there, who were able to give us both the um, incredible water effects uh, and the copper-beaten, copper, beaten, copper um, space-aged qualities to the outside of the observatory. This marvellous effect with uh, Heimdall and the freezing that comes out of the casket of ancient winters. I love the water in the background of this shot and the idea of encasing Heimdall like this. Back on Earth, we had other things to contend with. In New Mexico, quite splendid though it is, and although some of this is enhanced, we had our own challenges with the weather, not with the arrival of a destroyer, uh, but with uh, four seasons in a day. Sometimes um, uh, 50 mile an hour winds, uh, sometimes hail, sometimes snow, uh, sometimes rain, uh, literally all on the one day. And so sometimes working out quite what we could shoot or if we could still shoot uh, was, uh, was, was pretty difficult. Once again, uh, Darcy, it seems to me, is a, is a great representative of the audience, and Kat Dennings played her beautifully. Uh, she has a great uh, comic gift and uh, is also uh, extremely smart. She's one of those characters who um, allows you to believe that there is a, a very different kind of individual in there uh, beyond the, the surface of a very quick-witted, sort of cynical, sort of sarcastic uh, uh, individual. And uh, uh, it seems to me she, she scores in almost every moment she speaks, and it's uh, very valuable. What it gives you as you approach uh, these big sequences at the end of the movie is a chance to orchestrate. You know that somewhere you want to go from fun to laughter to thrill to exhilaration to violence to uh, big music to little music to rhythm uh, to uh, excitement. And uh, so there's this uh, thriller throb to uh, some of the action here, uh, camera moving all of the time, interrupted by this, the great weight of the destroyer. Uh, in planning this sequence, I remember it was one of the first things I did when I arrived in New Mexico and down this very street where the beautiful Jamie Alexander is just about to hide herself, I walked with 30, 40 colleagues and we tried to work out where we needed to be and how we needed to shoot all of the following and in what order. Uh, this was as complicated logistically as anything on the picture because it depended on certainty about when certain bombs would go off, when things that blew up 
up out of the bottom of the road would be buried, when the special effects would be buried, uh, when the second unit could come in and shoot um, the scenes that they needed to do. So, for instance, you won't be surprised to know that was Kylie Furneaux, her uh, stunt double, not Jamie Alexander, who did the biggest of those leaps as Sif. That had to be scheduled at a time when we were off doing something else so that Vic Armstrong and his team had the entire town to himself. And so the... Um, the makeup of this particular sequence, the orchestration, and indeed the working with a destroyer who, uh, on the day, was sometimes uh, a complete replicated model, but immobile. Sometimes it was just a large pair of, of uh, uh, lighting clamps with uh, some, some gaffer tape at the top of it to indicate um, what the destroyer looked like. But it was one... Um, sequence in which both myself and my very excellent first assistant director, Luc Etienne, uh, would call out through megaphones across the sounds of uh, huge fans creating wind or this kind of uh, debris, exactly what was happening, so that here Jamie would know the destroyer's arriving on your left, the smoke on your right, etc., etc. There needed to be a clear path through, even when out in the uh, open, not against green screen here, although sometimes we did indeed use green or blue screen outside, but here you needed both the benefits of the actual debris and wreckage of cars and fires that we did provide live, but you constantly needed to tell people what might be happening up in Asgard, what was happening with the destroyer uh, himself, and keep people you know, firmly in touch with, with what we're after. This brings us to the moment story-wise that we'd really been aiming for that is so inevitably connected to the moment where Thor walks into the movie for the first time as a grown-up, a man who is unwilling to sacrifice anything. So selfish is he. Uh, and in the moment that follows now, we have a man who has learned that he must, can and should be able, as a great leader, as a great king, but simply perhaps not as a god but as a man, be prepared to sacrifice everything. In this case, it means his life. Natalie Portman asks that question, but perhaps as an audience we already know. He's doing what, what has to be done. He's doing what um, a hero would do, not, not, not the act of a man who thinks he's a hero, but simply he does what has to be done. It ends up being heroic. This is not about Thor. This is about resolving things with his brother. Crucially, it's about saving the people and the town that is Puento Antigua uh, and saving the lives of those who have come to help him and from whom he has learnt and grown. The way Chris Hemsworth does this, the Patrick Doyle music to accompany it, the way in which it takes place in the format of a sort of Wild West fight, a showdown, a kind of high noon moment, all, all of this, I felt, had a sort of leanness and a simplicity to it that I thought was part of uh, the, the story of uh, the hero. And uh, we wanted to maintain surprise about uh, how Brother Loki would finally react to this and whether that could and, and should change his mind. Can it, can it end in peace? And the answer is, of course, it can't. And uh, we wanted the surprise not of the blast there, but of a sort of trick, a piece of Lokian mischief, which takes the destroyer's beam away, appears to perhaps indicate that Thor's persuaded him that he will understand, but no. Um, a sneaky trick, the smack, the back of the hand, and the clearly fatal blow takes us to the point where perhaps we've always known we must arrive, which is at the death of Thor the death of a man who did not think, the, man, the death of a man who did not care, the death of a man who was selfish, 
the death of a man who disregarded his family, his home, his friends. And in a sense, uh, symbolically at least, that man, that creature had to die. He had to give it up. He had to sacrifice it. He had to become, uh, to use Odin's word, worthy in that act of sacrifice, that act of sacrifice from a god, perhaps could lie the seeds, perhaps instant, as they say enlightenment comes to those who find it, redemption. And it's a redemption triggered partly by a father's pain and a father's pride. And so from Odin, we go back to that other hero of the film, trapped, but no longer, Mjolnir. And this, of course, leads us to a moment that we discussed over and over, uh, how visually, emotionally, musically, effectsly, uh, we could bring together this, this moment that we hope maybe in a movie theater could have the audience cheer if they loved him as much as, as we did and if, if they valued the idea of that happening. Uh, the God of Thunder is back in charge. Powers restored. Armor back on his magnificent God's frame, announcing his success to the world, providing awe and wonder in those who watch him, and now a chance to have uh, revenge and some fun as well. This musical cue was written probably three, four, five times. The uh, action sequence here, exactly what could Thor do to potentially trounce the destroyer. This was something that we um, worked on, even though it, it's, it's visual effects intensive, we worked on for almost the entire period of the shoot. Two things needed to happen. Uh, this needed to be an absolute example of the awesome power of a fully restored, fully motivated, truly heroic Thor and it also needed to happen quite swiftly because we know that dealing with Destroyer will not be the only thing Thor has to deal with before the end of this film. He needs to get back home and this needs to be taking care of business and taking care of business spectacularly but efficiently and briskly so that uh, we understand uh, what a superhero is when he's at his best. He's efficient, uh, he just gets on with it and is a very good neighbor. So now the film takes on a different kind of pace. Uh, Earth is protected, Puente Antigua is saved. Uh, there's some business to take care of, which is the uh, issue of uh, the return of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Clark Gregg's very funny reading of this uh, last uh, moment with uh, Thor before he needs to return to Asgard. And it also, I suppose, uh, lays out the possibility that Jane Foster and Selvig may work with S.H.I.E.L.D. in some future world where that research, which has brought us so close to understanding how and where Thor is from, uh, may perhaps be developed into something that could tell us yet more stories. Meantime, back on Asgard, Loki allows access for the Frost Giants. And lonely Heimdall looks to have been outwitted. I'm sure that can't happen for long. 
uh, one feels his frustration in there. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to try and tie up Idris Elba in any way that uh, uh, restricted him. We shot these sequences, of course, in the uh, New Mexican desert, and uh, it was uh, one of the areas where it was so so much a signature of the of the picture to see whether it would work successfully to put these costumes from these Asgardians on Earth. And in that space of the desert, on that kind of canvas, I was very, very pleased with the results. So to see them there, there's something, I don't know, very, very much in tune with modern versions of the comic books, particularly, for instance, runs of the comics that have uh, been authored by uh, Joe Michael Straczynski, who uh, in a way was part of perfecting the modern version of Thor on Earth. Heimdall is heroic and uh, allows us to just see what we can play of the extent to which this romantic feeling between Thor and Jane can play in the movie. And I think it's a tribute to these two that it, it carries much more weight than it might otherwise do because of its, I think, gentleness and its simplicity. It doesn't strain too hard. They don't strain too hard to be super sexy or super cool, super romantic. As a result, I think that they're all of those things. Um, and I think we want them to be together. We know that this hasn't progressed into the grand affair, the grand love affair, but we see that it has the potential for perhaps something very special and that there is a connection. Now we head into the final phase of the film. We're back on Asgard and uh, the family business has to be taken care of. First of all, of course, we give Frigga a moment to do what any warrior queen would do, which is try and defend her husband. Uh, we consciously kept the world of Asgard, these corridors, uh, a little emptier than you might expect them to be, suggesting that gods know how to look after themselves, especially gods in Asgard. They're not expecting to be uh, invaded. I enjoyed uh, reflecting uh, Colm Fior in uh, Anthony Hopkins's uh, eyeball. That's the last creature I'd wish to have hovering above me, and it's especially creepy that, as he says, Odin can hear and see what's going on even as his attempted murder uh, begins. But we know it's only attempted because what we hope and discovered in, in previews would be the audience believing that that blow had been struck by Thor actually have an intake of breath when they understand that it is uh, Loki. And let's, while he's there, the, the great Tom Hiddleston, have a talk about those helmets. That helmet was worn in two pieces. It was extremely painful. He was very patient about it. All the helmets were heavy and tight in order to have the great look, the great line. Nothing could rattle, nothing could roll. Um, and the combination of what the collar does, the lines on the front of that uh, of that costume, ditto Thor's, uh, they they make it work in a kind of um, very streamlined aerodynamic way that I think... Uh, hints at the classic renditions of the uh, frames from the comics, but stops it being in the way they're worn, in the colors, in the palette, in the textures. It stops it being campy, stops it being kitschy, or at least not to, to, to a degree that allows us to uh, accept a different kind of robustness to it.
our rules about how this uh, observatory worked means that um, we could now have, instead of uh, Heimdall's sword slash key, uh, that was what made it work, we accepted the idea that the other instrument that could make that work was Gunya, Odin's spear, and now usable by Loki because in in Odin's absence, uh, Loki runs uh, Asgard, that that very sort of map, that kind of astral reflective map of Idrisil, is now frozen, locked solid. And we like the idea of doing this in order to create not a traveling light source that could take you briefly, instantaneously through time warps to other times and places and worlds, but now a burgeoning building nuclear weapon so that Bifrost, the miracle agent of time and space travel, becomes the agent of destruction. But of course, although that technology is at work, we see it frozen open, ready to create chaos on, on the world that Loki must destroy, the world of his parentage, the idea of wiping out the race that would prove that there are no more of that race, so Loki really is an Asgardian, is, is part of where his passionate determination to belong and to win his father, father's approval has now sort of led him to. So in the middle of this burgeoning sort of technological explosion, there is in concentrated in this arena, this now different arena, this frozen arena, this resolution of uh, the biblical battle between two brothers. Two brothers whose conflict now is potentially liable to see the destruction of part or all of the universe, but certainly Jotunheim. And all of this has come from a dispute, if you like, at one simple level about their own competition to enjoy, approve, receive, be preeminent in their father's love. And now, with these two extraordinary weapons as equals and uh, inside the dangerous, ever more acceleratingly lethal world of the uh, frozen Bifrost, with uh, the observatory and Asgard's fate spinning out of control, you have these stakes and this action heightening with every uh, blow, as it were. It, it's, it's a battle, it would seem, of two equals uh, that now spills out onto the rainbow bridge and it was this kind of image it was rather like the the horses riding across it and this kind of image the idea of these two brothers people who we recognize uh, with human traits human characteristics fighting with real passions real motivations but nevertheless fighting uh, at extreme danger in an epic landscape this bridge in the middle of outer space attached to the asteroid on which asgard rules the universe, led to the bridge, now in danger uh, of using its power and its beam to destroy one, perhaps more worlds if this uh, conflict isn't resolved. The idea, the heightened nature of all of that seemed to me something that could be so remarkable and unusual. And I'm very proud of the, the these kinds of images, these, I would call them epic images, where um, the power of the sea the power of lightning, the power of space, uh, the, the power of these elements, this, these elemental forces are uh, about to overwhelm or could they be at the mercy of these two figures or one of them if one can overpower. But clearly with everything that's been set up, we, 
we always hoped that we might put Thor, the man who has changed, the man who at the beginning of this film wouldn't have thought twice about this, now decides that it's actually a choice to make. And Jotunheim, whatever it might be, does not deserve the fate that Loki has imposed upon it. And so this idea of potentially giving up a route back to the place where he found himself, where he found happiness, and where perhaps he may have found or could find love, is going to be sacrificed in order to save Jotunheim and the stability and peace of the Nine Realms. We'll see whether Jane forgives him. One man who won't is Loki. And uh, the series of images that follow really speak for the sort of cataclysmic ending to which we believed a, a film like this could head, where this really is, I think, a spectacular series of uh, visual effects moments that uh, are beautifully supervised by uh, uh, the brilliant uh, Wesley Sewell and, uh, and his team, and where all of the key members of the team Bo Welsh in design, Harris Ambalukos in photography, Wes in, in visual effects, Paul Rebell in, in editing, our stunt team, Vic Armstrong and Andy, the costumes of Alex Byrne, the uh, various uh, makeups of all our characters from uh, Louisa Abel, Jan Alexander in hair and makeup, quite uh, magnificent. And I love the look of Mr. Hiddleston as he heads off into that void what is going to happen there's a there's a big question mark there and for us the big question mark was how do we get back to earth On this occasion, we, we were filming this real shot, took place on a real Friday afternoon in New Mexico when the sun was going down. We got that real sunset. It was one of, if you will, please, please, please forgive my language, a sort of kick, bollock and scramble moment uh, where uh, everybody's running to uh, shoot this moment in what some refer to as the magic hour and which we in film know to be the tragic hour uh, because you can never quite get the shot as you want it. Here, uh, the opposite was true. Um, these three actors are rushed to, dragged them out of their trailers. You got to go, the light's going, the light's going. Uh, and we were able to get uh, the reason we went to New Mexico. Big sky, a sunset, uh, mountains, three amazing actors, a great image, and one that would allow us, as we see uh, Jane's disappointment, to perhaps begin the process of taking us back up to see uh, how all of this is resolved in Asgard here, this time with the travel we've done now, allowing us to compress the journey, uh, but still enjoy just feeling that miraculous and, and strange underside of, of Asgard. And Asgard now in a kind of post-battle, post-near-apocalypse post twilight, uh, where a little hint of what happens in the, uh, in the myths and in the comics, which is, although not here, in the halls of Valhalla, they sing and they talk and they drink and they dance and they celebrate their exploits, particularly led by Volstagg, who's prone to uh, exaggeration, of course, and uh, there's a kind of um, melancholy hangs over this at this point. Uh, Thor has left Earth, has sacrificed the Rainbow Bridge, has uh, saved the peace of Asgard, has saved Jotunheim, but of course 
has lost a brother, it wasn't as simple as saying that he was right and Loki was wrong. It was as the film has tried to be because the comics are and the myths are just a bit more complicated than that. We find, of course, as he walks the halls beyond which this uh, magnificent sort of Scandinavian-influenced uh, landscape of, uh, of Asgard uh, sits uh, a fine company called Whiskey Tree who produced the visual effects for the creation of, uh, of Asgard here. We find that he goes back to what I mentioned earlier was really the base emotional heart of the picture, fathers and sons. And that was the question, would he be at the beginning? Odin says he will. But actually, although he's in the affirmative, Thor now has second thoughts. This is a beautifully and simply done scene between the, uh, the two men. It's about, in part, the inability of certain kinds of males, warrior males, to easily reveal their feelings to each other. Uh, they do here with great delicacy and with a sense of vulnerability that I think is, is touching. Uh, I think it's beautifully and simply played by the pair of them. And you feel the weight of the experience of the film, that they have, they have bought this experience. They've arrived here, changed, inspired in some ways, saddened in some ways, and now ready to go on with their lives. But there's a big question mark. Can the Rainbow Bridge be rebuilt? Where is Jane Foster? What will happen to Asgard's relationship to Earth? So Earth is lost to us. And the beginning of the upbeat at the end of our picture here is, uh, is the understanding that perhaps there could always be hope. Heimdall says so. I listen to Heimdall. Well, sure enough, down in Smith Motors, in this shot, which was a shot originally planned to open the film with, it was going to be the very first shot of the movie, it turned into the very last, almost. She searches for you. And now as we go through these main on end titles, I hope you'll enjoy this race through space, this uh, voyage which originally was in the body of the movie and it was the beginnings of a travel from Earth up through space, through various time warps here to this Milky Way style galaxy through which we pass and then pull out another part of and then understand that we are now in fact traveling through around and uh, between the branches of Idrisil, the world's tree, the great galactic nebulae that Odin describes and the comics describe in both ancient art and in scientific versions as the linking the linking web, if you like, between the nine realms of the universe and this opportunity to take the audience on a journey through space and through Idrisil was uh, something that we worked on through the whole of the, the time we were making the film. Again, this, this part of uh, the movie was uh, uh, created by our visual effects team and uh, uh, executed and uh, much uh, enhanced by uh, Bouffe in Paris. And, uh, 
although it didn't make it into the body of the film. It was a fantastic way, I think, to go out at the end of a Marvel movie that uh, has tried to give sense of fun, sense of exhilaration, has taken you, I hope, on an emotional journey, but is leaving you with a, a sense of a sort of forward movement, with a sense of uh, optimism, and with perhaps a sense that uh, if there are other movies of Thor or other movies in which Thor exists, uh, that you might want to come back and see him. Uh, my name's Ken Branner, and I thank you very much for watching Thor. I'm going to leave you now with the answer to the question uh, that some people ask me, which is, how on earth could you possibly even start to uh, direct a film like Thor? Uh, well, the answer is unfolding to you and will do over the next seven minutes. It is all of these people. That's how anybody can do something like this. But I was uh, uniquely blessed with the talent and the kindness of the people with whom I worked. You'll see thousands of names across this next five or six minutes. All of them truly did have a contribution to make and over two or three years of making one of these pictures, it's something you understand and appreciate and are deeply grateful for. So on behalf of all of these, my fellows, my fellow collaborators, my co-workers, uh, once again, thank you very much for watching Thor. Thank you for listening to this commentary and goodbye. Please, however, do enjoy listening to the amazing Foo Fighters um, uh, who are singing and performing this song, uh, The Walk, from their latest and uh, a chart-topping album, and what an honor it was to have them associated with the movie, with a lyric they might have written for us. So to all of them, thank you very much indeed. And if you'd like, you might want to join me just right at the end of the credits in case there's some kind of surprise there. I'll see you there.
And so that's the end of the film, the end of another Marvel movie, the end of Thor, the God of Thunder. Dr. Selvig. Thor will indeed return in The Avengers, and he will be directed by Joss Whedon, a brilliant talent who I spoke to before he came on board to do this little piece, which I'm very delighted ends up at the end of our film, in which I was especially pleased to see the continuing appearance of Dr. Eric Selvig, this time talking to uh, the great Sam Jackson as Nick Fury. And I find myself intrigued by exactly where they are and exactly what they are to discuss. What I can tell you is that what you're about to see has some reference back into the movie Thor. Have a look at what uh, comes up inside the suitcase that Sam Jackson refers to and see whether it jogs your memory about a moment in our picture that may have referred to it. If we can figure out how to tap it, maybe unlimited power. Loki's back as director of Thor and as a keen fan of Marvel movies, I've learned maybe not to believe everything I see. Thanks for watching. <laughs>